our, there we go, now I'm on. Welcome to week three of our Advent series, What Child Is This? And uh, if you've been around, you know that we've covered a little bit of territory so far. We began a couple of weeks ago by talking about how this child is God. Uh, he's, he's God, right? He's God incarnate, God who came uh, to reveal to us who the Father is. That's one of the things that Jesus came to do. And one of the things we discovered as, is that this child is the God of forgiveness, which is a good thing, right? Because that's something that we all need. The reality is that uh, all of us are in the same boat. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short of God's perfect design for our lives. And so uh, one of the things that we need is forgiveness. And so when, when Jesus came as a baby on that very first Christmas morning, one of the things that he came to bring to us is the gift of forgiveness. And we're thankful for that this morning. And then uh, last week, we talked about how that this child is the God of radical generosity, that that's just the nature of God, that he is a God who is radically generous. He's the God of exceedingly, abundantly more, who loves to give good gifts to his children, and he sent his son, and so he gave the very best that he could give, uh, his very own son, and Jesus came again to, to point to the Father as this is who the Father is, and so he lived a life of radical generosity, and and uh, come on, you can't give more than everything. And he gave his life. And so we're thankful again that God is a God who is radically generous. This morning, uh, we're going to shift our focus once again. And I want to talk to you this morning about how this child is not only the God of forgiveness, he's not only the God of radical generosity, but as the scriptures were read for us this morning and the candle was lit, we recognize that he is the God of second chances. Boy, I'm glad for that one, aren't you? That he is the God of another chance. And uh, just as kind of a backdrop for uh, our, our, what we're going to talk about this morning, um, I want to look at what is probably my favorite story in the Bible in regards to second chances. I think this is one of the greatest examples of, of second chances in all of the Bible. It's found in John chapter 21, and so if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app with you, I encourage you to open them, to turn there to John chapter 21. We're going to begin reading with verse 1, and I'm going to be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Uh, verse 1, John begins, and he says this. He says, after Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, now I want to pause already, uh, because John begins by saying, after this. I think it's important that we know what the after this is. What is, at, what is this after? Well, first of all, this is after the resurrection. This is after Jesus has revealed himself to, to Mary and to the disciples. This is after Jesus uh, appeared to Thomas, you know, after Thomas had said, unless I see the, the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus appeared to Thomas. But most relevant to this story is this is after Peter one of Jesus' disciples, one of the inner circle, one, not only one of the 12, but one of the three, one of the closest to Jesus, this is after Peter has denied Jesus. He failed Jesus. He blew it. Not once, not twice, but three times. 
And, and, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. You remember how uh, G, or Peter, on the, on the day that Jesus was arrested, Peter's kind of bragging because that's what he does. He's a talker. He's always talking. And, and, and you know, he's, he's bragging about how, you know, Jesus, you don't have to worry. No matter what happens to you, no matter how difficult it gets, everybody else may bail on you, but not me. I'm going to be with you even to the point of death. And, of course, Jesus looks at Peter and kind of shakes his head, and he says, uh, Peter, before the night is over, in fact, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me not once but three times, which, of course, is exactly what happens, right? Uh, Jesus is arrested, and all of the disciples flee, and uh, Jesus is taken by the, the guards to the house of Caiaphas, and Peter follows from a distance, and, and there in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house, as Jesus is being interrogated three times, uh, Peter denies Jesus. You know him, right? You're one of his disciples. No, I've never seen the guy before. You're one of his friends, right? I'm telling you, I don't know the man. Three times, Peter denies Jesus. And so it was after all of that that John says that Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, this is the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Jesus revealed himself in this way. If you've got your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to underline that word revealed because it is the fresh revelation of Jesus that is the key to this entire chapter. Now, now uh, depending on what version you may be reading, uh, you may, in your translation, it may say instead of revealed, it may use uh, the language that Jesus appeared. If that's the case, I would encourage you maybe just to write alongside that or above it or around it somewhere that word revealed because I think that is a much better translation of what John is trying to communicate here. In fact, the original word that John uses uh, is a word that actually means to take what is hidden or unknown and make it known. There's this, there's this idea, it's all about revelation, to take what is not known currently and to make it known. Uh, you find this again in, in uh, verse 14, John says, now this is the third time that Jesus has, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And, and so this, this idea of revelation, this is the key to the chapter. Jesus is about to reveal himself to Peter in a brand new way. And the truth of the matter is that on the heels of Peter's greatest failure, this is what he needs more than anything. You, you see, what, what Peter needs is not a lecture. You know, Peter, you, you sure blew this one, didn't you? I mean, I, I mean, why didn't you listen to me? I tried to tell you. I tried to warn you. And after everything I said, you still blew it. You know, your problem is, is that you're so busy talking that you fail to listen. And as a result, you blew it. That, that's not what Peter needs. He, he knows he blew it. You see, what Peter needs more than anything is he needs a fresh revelation of the love that God still has for him in spite of his failure. He needs to hear again that, that even though he's failed, God's purpose for Peter's life hasn't changed. And so this is what's about to happen. This is what this whole chapter is all about. It's about revelation, okay? So we'll, we'll keep reading. After this, 
Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, um, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out again and they got into the boat. But that night, and I want to stop right here again. This concept of night is interesting. That The idea of light and darkness, daytime and night. It's something that as you read through the Gospel of John, what you'll discover is this is an idea or a concept that he just kind of plays with over and over and over again. Uh, in fact, he begins in John chapter 1, uh, right out of the chute. He says this, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then he says this, in him was life, and that life was the, what? Light of men. The light of men. The light that shines in the darkness. And then he says this, this is interesting, but the darkness has not understood it. And so immediately... Uh, this idea of light versus dark, day versus night. And of course, John associates Jesus with light. And, and, and then whenever he talks about darkness or night, there's always this um, undertone kind of, uh, of something that is counter to Jesus. That there's always this undertone of sin and rebellion or, or of shame. Uh, for, for example, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, the, the teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus, John makes sure that we understand that rather than coming to him boldly in the daytime, instead, because of his shame, because Nicodemus doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming to Jesus, John says that he comes at night. And then in John chapter 9, Jesus himself, he talks about the night. Right before healing this man who was born blind, Jesus makes this statement. He says, we have to work while it is day because when the night comes, when the night comes, that's a time when no one works. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that productivity happens in the day, nothing productive happens at night. And it's kind of like when I was a kid, my mom used to say, nothing good ever happens after midnight. And uh, take it from somebody who before I surrendered my life to Jesus, I spent a lot of time out after midnight, and she was right. Nothing good happens after midnight. And so this is kind of what Jesus is saying here. This is the picture that John is trying to paint for us. And this is why in John chapter 11, Jesus says, if anyone walks at night, what happens? He stumbles. In other words, in the darkness where there's no light the light of Christ, we have the tendency to trip and to stumble. But, but probably the most poignant of all is in John chapter 13. This is a story of when Judas is about to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows this, and so he says to Judas, he says, whatever it is that you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And then John says that Judas got up from the table, he left, he went out, and John makes note of this. He says, and it was night. 
Again, John is using this as kind of a metaphor. You see, it wasn't just night outside the doors of the upper room. The reality is, is that the real darkness had somehow made its way into Judas's soul. Okay, so let's go back to John, uh, chapter 21. When John points out that Peter is getting in the boat and it's at night, what he's trying to do is he's trying to help us understand that this is not just a story about fishing. That, that instead, this is, this is a story about a season in Peter's life where he is struggling and he's in this place of darkness in his own soul. He's, he's stumbled. He's failed. And as a result, the light has been dimmed. This is so interesting because John also makes point of telling us that when, when they went out, not only was it night, but he says they went out and they got into the boat. That's interesting to me. I mean, why not a boat? I mean, they're, they're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and, and this is a place where, where there's lots of fishing that goes on, and so there are boats everywhere, so why not a boat? I think the reason why is because it must have been a specific boat. It wasn't just a boat. It was the boat that they were getting into. It, it, was, it was the boat that Peter had left behind in order to follow Jesus. It, it was the, the, the boat, the very thing that Peter said, I am willing to leave this behind. Because remember, Peter was a fisherman. When Jesus called him, that's what he was doing. And, and this was the boat that Peter had left behind when he said, I'm willing to leave all of that for the greater purpose of following Jesus. It's that boat. It's, it's the boat that we read about in, in Luke chapter 5 where it says that, and Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're not going to be catching fish. You're going to be catching men. And, and then it says, and when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. You see, three years before John chapter 21, Peter had left that boat in order, in order to follow Jesus. And now on the heels of his failure, he's gone back to that boat, the boat. The, the boat that, that at one time, that was his identity, again, Peter was a fisherman. The, the, the boat that at one time, this was his source of security. This was the way that he, he provided for his family. This is how he knew that his family would be taken care of in the future. This was the boat that Peter had made his living out of. It was the source of his provision. And, and let, me, let me just say this. If you, if you ever go with us to one of our trips to Israel, which hopefully, you know, this pandemic will be over here. We'll get a, a, a vaccine and that'll be done with and we'll be able to schedule another one of those. But if you ever get a go with us on one of those trips, one of the places that will take you is to Capernaum, which was the place that Peter lived and will actually take you to his house. They've, they've excavated his home there. And one of the things that you'll discover in that place is that Peter wasn't just a poor fisherman. In fact, his house was in a prominent place of the city. And according to ancient tradition, 
Peter did quite well fishing. Uh, he, 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 uh, in fact, this was a great business for them. He did well enough that he hired other people. And, and sometimes I think that we, we think about the disciples and we think about them as being these poverty-ridden peasants before they met Jesus and more than likely some of them were because because scripture tells us that Jesus came and and one of the one of the groups of people that he was attracted to and were attracted to him were the least and the last and the lost and the poor the ones that were forgotten and so that certainly was the case for some but probably not for Peter James and John more than likely, they were kind of like us, middle class. They had a, a, a good business there on the Sea of Galilee. And so Peter, when he left all of that, he left something significant. He left what was safe and comfortable behind in order to follow Jesus. Yet, yet now, Peter is saying, you know what? Th this thing it certainly didn't work out the way that I thought it would. And so, so I think I'm just going to go back to all of that back to where it's safe back to where it's come back to what i know it's it's interesting because uh isn't that what we're always tempted to do we're always tempted, you know, when, when times of difficulty and confusion enter our lives and when, when Jesus doesn't make sense, when things don't work out the way they thought we would, the temptation that we all face is always to go back to whatever it was that we left in order to follow Jesus. You know, back to that, that, that old relationship. Back to that habit, back to that, uh, uh, that addiction, that substance, back to that source of security, back to that source of comfort, back to that place of familiarity. Even though, even though the reason we left it was because it never brought peace, it never brought lasting happiness, but the temptation is always to go back. This is what Peter's dealing with in this story. I mean, when he first met Jesus and Jesus asked Peter to follow him, in his mind, I'm sure that Peter thought, man, I'm following Jesus, and so as I follow him, everything's always going to be up and to the right. I mean, in his mind, he had bought in to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, he had experienced the wisdom of Jesus. He recognized it. He, he experienced his power. He saw the miracles. And, and so in his mind and the rest of the disciples, for that matter, they really believed Jesus. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The, the, he is the one who's going to deliver us from the tyranny of Rome. And in their minds, I thought, you know, he's always talking about this kingdom that, that I've come and I brought with me my, my kingdom. And so he's talking about this kingdom. And so in their hearts and minds, you know how we do, we play out the story. What we don't know, we make up. And so in their minds, they began to play this out. And so they expected, you know, he's going to rise up. He's going to be this great leader. And, and all of the, the military folks are going to rally around him. And they're going to overthrow Rome. And he's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule. And he's going to reign. And so this is why oftentimes when you read through the Gospels, you see them bickering with each other and kind of jockeying for position. You know, when he does this, who's going to sit on his left and who's going to sit on his right? All of these pictures of grandeur, and then all of a sudden, instead of a throne, there was a cross. And in that moment, 
All of these dreams that Peter had, they just exploded in his face. Then after Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and man, that's exciting, and he he appears, and and so their hope naturally is, okay, it's going to be like old times. I mean, things are going to be like they were before, except they weren't. I mean, Jesus appears, and then as quickly as he appears, he disappears, and, and Peter is reeling, and I'm sure his emotions are all over the place, and honestly, you know, he, he's, he's dealing with this, and he still hasn't even had time to, to, to process his own failure. And now here he is with these disciples, his friends, James and John and these guys that know him better than anybody else. And you know how it is when you failed and you're around other people and you think all they can think about is my failure. I mean, they know what I've done and that's probably all they think about. They think I'm a loser. And even though they don't, that's what you think that they think. It's just human nature. So Peter's wrestling with all of this and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. And on the one hand, you know, Jesus or Peter, he, he had to be excited about the fact that, that Jesus had showed up. But on the other hand, it was a painful reminder of what he had done. That the very thing that he had said he wouldn't do, he did. And so Peter's processing all of this. And somewhere along the line, as Peter is just wrestling with all of this, he's like, you know what? I, 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 who was I? to think that God could somehow use somebody like me. I just just need to go back and do what it is that I know how to do. I don't know, maybe there are some this morning, some who are watching online, some of you here, and the truth is that if you're really honest, that that's exactly where you're at. You know, maybe on some level you failed, or maybe you feel that some way God has failed you. It can work both ways, right? I failed him, or maybe in my mind I think, well, he failed me. He didn't show up the way I thought he was going to show up. God didn't do, you know, what I thought he would do. Things didn't turn out like I prayed they'd turn out. I mean, in faith, I prayed. I, I, even, I even told people in faith, this is what God's going to do. I, I not only prayed it, I spoke it. But it didn't happen. You know, maybe the healing didn't come, or the breakthrough didn't take place, or your marriage wasn't healed, or your child is still running and rebelling, or your business didn't succeed, and whatever it is, now all of a sudden you're dealing with this disappointment, either in God or in yourself. You know, if I, if I could have just done better. If I would have just prayed hard, or maybe I didn't pray the right prayers, or maybe I didn't fast enough, or maybe I didn't do this right, if I were just better. And you're this close to giving up. Can I tell you this morning, you're not alone. This is a battle that all of us face at some point in time in our life. And this is where Peter is at. And so Peter says, you know what, I quit. I'm going fishing. So John says that that Peter, along with a few of the other disciples, which, which by the way, can, can I tell you this, that one of the reasons there's so much at stake here is that 
when, whenever we fall, it impacts more than us. I mean, Peter takes six other guys with him who are all disciples of Jesus. There's so much at stake. We think it's just about us. This is why we, we need to be so careful about this. So, so Peter, along with a few other disciples, John says they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. That's interesting. That the very thing that they knew how to do, the very thing they thought they could do, they couldn't do. Why? Because they were new people. They, they, they had entered into a new life. They, God has had his hand on their life, and God's been at work in their life, and they've walked with God. You see, once you walk with God, you can't go back to where you were. You're a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. And so here's Peter. They tried to go back to who they were before, to where they were before, but it wasn't working. Peter can't catch any fish. And as the dawn breaks on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, as Peter's out on the water, I just imagine in my mind, again, if you ever get to go with us, this is one of the places we'll take you, on a boat out on the Sea of Galilee. And one of the things you'll discover is this place is so compact. The Sea of Galilee is only like six miles wide and 13 miles long, and you can just see everything around it. And most of Jesus' ministry happened in that location. And so just imagine, I imagine in my mind that as, as Peter is there on the Sea of Galilee and the sun is coming up and he's looking around, he sees Bethsaida, the place where Jesus fed the 5,000 with just a couple loaves and bread and a few fish. He looks over and he sees the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus delivered the most powerful sermon that's ever been preached. He, he, he looks over and he sees his hometown of Capernaum, the place where, where Jesus did so many miracles. It's the place where he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's the place where Peter's own mother-in-law was, was sick and, and Jesus healed her of her fever. It was the place where at Peter's house where they used to bring the sick and the demonized and Jesus healed them all. Peter would have looked over and he would have saw the cliff. This was amazing to me as I looked over and saw the cliff where Jesus had cast the demons out of the man into the herd of pigs and the pigs had run off of the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. And think about this, who knows? Maybe in this fishing spot, maybe it just so happened that their boat was right in the spot where Jesus had calmed the storm. Maybe it was in the place where Peter had saw this figure out on the water walking across the sea and he heard him call his name, Peter, come out on the water. Peter went out and did what you're not supposed to be able to do. He walked on the water with Jesus. He's out there on the Sea of Galilee. And I just, I just can't help but imagine. I mean, Peter is human. And, and, and you know how that there are things that trigger memories. There's sights and sounds and smells and places. And I, I, in my mind, I just can't help but imagine that Peter is thinking about all that he witnessed Jesus do in all of those places. 
And in this moment, in verse 4, it says, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It's interesting. These guys that had walked with him for three years. <laughs> These guys that had spent, I mean, 24-7 with Jesus for three years, they didn't know it was him. But, but as you read through the Gospels, this seems to be pretty typical of the resurrected Jesus. I mean, if you remember another time, there are two of his followers who are on the road of Emmaus, uh, to Emmaus, and, and, and they're, they're, they're heartbroken because this one who they had left everything to follow has been crucified. They're heartbroken, and all of a sudden, Jesus joins them, and they don't even know it's him. And he's talking with them. He was right there. And they're lamenting the fact that he's gone. They didn't even know that he was there when he was right there. Here Peter and his friends are, and they're discouraged to the point of quitting. And, and yet what they don't know is that Jesus is right there. They've blown it. They're headed in a different direction. And yet Jesus is still right there on the shore of their life. Yet they didn't know it. Listen, can I just say this? I, I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but what I do know is this, that even in the most broken of any situation, whatever your situation may be, in the midst of whatever failure you may have experienced in your life, in the midst of desperation, just because you don't see Jesus doesn't mean he's not there. You see, the same God who loved Peter loves you. The, the, the same God who, who showed up in this moment for Peter is the same God who in that moment when you're thinking about throwing in the towel because it seems like you know, he's nowhere to be found, it, 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 it just feels like he's disappeared. He appears and then he disappears. Can I say this? In that moment when you're wondering where he is, he's right there on the shore of your life. You just may not be able to recognize him, but he's there. So John says that Jesus says to them, they don't know who he is. and He's standing on the shore and Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? I want, you to, I want you to picture this. These guys, they're, they're fishermen. They've been fishing all night. They haven't caught a thing. And so they're frustrated out of their minds. Because for days, you know, these guys, these friends, these, these people, all they've heard, again, Peter's a talker. And so all they've heard from Peter is, man, guys, um, you know, we're going to make some money. I mean, things may, may not have been going our way, but guys, you know, I know it's been tough, but, but if you stick with me, I promise our luck's going to change. Peter's like, man, there are a lot of things I don't know how to do, but trust me, one of the things I know how to do is I know how to catch fish. And, and then, he, then all these promises, you know, and when we, we're going to go out, we're going to catch all these fish, we're going to take them to market in the morning, we're going to sell them, and we're going to be on our way to building this incredible business. Who knows? Maybe we'll franchise it. And you guys are in on the ground level, and, 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 and he's selling this thing, and they're buying into it. We're going to be making all of this money. 
And so here they are, they fished all night, and they haven't caught a thing. It didn't turn out the way that they thought they would, and so they're tired, they're frustrated, and all of a sudden, this person that they don't know, they really know, but they don't know that they know him, and so they think they don't know him, and he shows up on the beach 100 yards away, and he hollers out, how's the fishing? Can I tell you as a fisherman, that is the most annoying question anybody can ask you when you're not catching anything. I mean, when we're catching fish, we love to talk about fishing. But when we haven't caught anything, we don't want to talk about it. And so he yells out, how's the fishing? And they're, they're like, it's terrible, it stinks, we got skunked. And then I'm sure they started making excuses because that's what fishermen do. It must have something to do with the barometric pressure because nobody's catching anything. And we feel better if we're not catching anything, if nobody's catching anything, because then it's not about us. And so they're making these excuses, but the bottom line is they haven't caught anything. And then this guy on the shore does something really annoying. He hollers back and he gives them advice. Fishermen don't like that either. You know, you've tried the red lure. What if you try the blue lure? What, do you think I'm stupid enough not to try the... I tried the blue lure. And he yells back and he says, have you guys thought about putting your nets out on the other side? And I'm sure James, in his mind, he's like, who is this guy? We're the professionals here. Of course, have we thought about putting our nets out on the other side? We put our nets out on this side because of the currents, because of the wind. We know how to catch fish. And I'm sure Thomas is like, well, I doubt we're going to do that. (laughs) And John is finally, you know, he's like, out of just pure exhaustion, he says, you know what, we're here. I mean, what's it going to hurt? And so... Together, they shift to the other side of the boat, and they throw their nets out, and all of the sudden, the sea begins to come to life. The water begins to boil as it is teeming with fish, and they begin to feel the weight of the nets begin to feel. To the point, so many fish that the nets are almost ready to break. And instantly in that moment, John tells us that his eyes were opened. What was previously unknown somehow supernaturally has now been made known. There's this revelation that has taken place and his eyes were open. And John all of a sudden says, it's the Lord. And instantly... His eyes were open. Man, it's amazing how things can change in an instant, isn't it? Uh, Let's just look at it again. He said to them, cast the net, Jesus, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And then it says, that disciple whom Jesus loved. I love this because John's writing it and you know, everybody knows they're talking about John and so John's like, why would I call myself John when I can call myself the disciple that Jesus loved? And so he says, the disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put 
on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. So Peter, you know, he's stripped down to his skivvies for fishing, but but he can't wait for the boat to get in, and so he puts on his outer garment because he's going to swim in to see Jesus, and it would be undignified, it would be disrespectful for him to appear before Jesus unclothed. So he puts on this outer garment, he dives into the water, he swims in, and it says the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off let's not miss what's happening here because Jesus out of his incredible love for Peter even though he's blown it Jesus has staged a miracle not only for Peter but for James and John and the other disciples Because he wants to take them back to a place. They went back to a place. And now Jesus wants to take them back to the place when they first met him. When they first encountered him. That that place where for the very first time they experienced his power in such a compelling, awe-inspiring way that they couldn't imagine doing life without Jesus. And so they left everything in order to follow him. I want you to look at it in Luke chapter 5. Similar story. Luke tells us that on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. Again, this is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out in them and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let's let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and we haven't caught anything. Sounds familiar, right? He says, we've, we've toiled all night and we, and we, we took nothing But then Peter says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them, uh, partners James and John. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish they'd taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Peter says, I'm a sinful man. Jesus doesn't say, Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be around you. Jesus says, Do not be afraid because from now on you will be catching men and then when they had brought their boats to land it says that they left everything and followed him you you see what's happening in john chapter 21 is that jesus staged this miracle 
It was a reminder of that first moment. He staged it so he could take Peter back to the place where Peter first understood for the very first time who Jesus was. When Peter experienced for the very first time the unconditional love and forgiveness even in spite of his sinfulness, Jesus takes Peter back to that very first moment when he met him. And, and when Peter experienced this revelation, what once was unknown or hidden was suddenly made known to him. This revelation that was so stunning that it caused Peter to rearrange everything in his life. Can, can, can I just ask you this this morning? Do you remember that moment in your own life? <laughs> Do you remember that moment when you first met Jesus? <laughs> that, 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 that moment where his presence was so overwhelming and the thought of his love was so amazing that you were willing to set everything aside in order to follow him. Listen, if this morning you're feeling like you've disappointed God or God has disappointed you, and as a result, you know, you feel like you're trapped in this life of distance from God, let me just ask you this. What's changed? Jesus hasn't. So the question is, have, have you, have I, you see, the problem with failure and disappointment is it can so fog up our vision of Jesus. And, 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 and what we really need is we need a reminder of why we got into it in the first place, why we left everything, why we chose to follow Jesus, because this revelation will clear our vision. What we really need is a fresh revelation of Jesus. And so Jesus shows up on the shore of Peter's life, and I love this. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't chew him out. Instead, he makes him breakfast. <laughs> and this is so beautiful. I want you to look at verse 9. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. In the, in the original language, it says that they saw coals and embers on the ground. Now, the reason that I want to highlight this is because we only find that language one other place in Scripture, and John is, again, the one who uses it. Guess where he uses it? He uses it in John 18, where it says that Jesus was being tried, and the soldiers and the guards and the servants created a fire of embers and coals on the ground to warm themselves by it. And Peter stood near it. This was the place where Peter had failed Jesus. Again, it kind of makes me think about how there are certain smells, certain images, certain sounds that can trigger certain memories. Yesterday, Laura and I went over to my mom and dad's house, and, and we had a, a, a baking session. We baked a bunch of Christmas goodies. And um, as, as I was there watching mom and dad and Laura bake, 
and, and I baked too. I didn't just watch them. I baked too. But, but as I was watching them and I was smelling the smells and I was looking at these different Christmas cookies that my mom has made since you know, I was a kid, that many of them were my grandma's recipes. <laughs> I couldn't help it. My, all of these memories just came flooding in. <laughs> Thinking back to Christmas's past. I think this is what Jesus is doing for Peter right here. I, I, I think that Jesus used this, the fish, he used the boat to take Peter back to the very first moment that he called him. But I also think that Jesus used the, the fire and the smell of the smoke in order to let Peter know, yeah, I know that you've blown it. I remember that as well as you do. And I know that's where your mind keeps going. But, but I've got a new fire. And, and this is a new setting. And what I want you to know is that I am still the God who loves you. And I'm willing to meet you right at the place of your deepest failure. I'm still the God who forgives you. And, and, and I don't want you to be afraid of that memory anymore. In fact, I, I believe that Jesus is like, here's what I'm going to do. In fact, I'm going to bring you back to a similar setting, and I'm going to do something so great in your life that it's going to give you a new memory that is way more powerful than your old memory. So now every time you come back to this place, the thing that you're going to remember is the depth of my love and my grace and forgiveness, and what you're going to remember is that I am the God of second chances. It says, when they got out on land, they saw the charcoal fire with the fish being laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. If you skip down to verse 15, this is probably the most familiar part of this entire chapter. John writes, he says, when they had finished their breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. He, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said a third time, do you love me? And so Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? What's he talking about? I don't believe that he's pointing to the disciples and he's saying, okay, Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? I mean, the last thing the disciples need is a who loves Jesus more contest. And so when Jesus asked that question, do you love me more than these? 
what he's asking, I, I think he's, he, he's, he's asking, do you love me more than all of those fish? Do you love me more than the nets? Do, do you love me more than the boat? <laughs> you see, what, what he's saying is, Peter, do you love me more than you love your source of security? Peter, do you love me more than, than your source of provision? Do you love me more than your source of comfort? Do you love me more than your ability to be in control of a situation? That's a good question. Do you love me more than being in control? Do you love me more than operating in this space where you always feel competent? Three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? One time, for each time that Jesus had failed. And each time, Peter says, oh, Jesus, you know, you know me. I wish I could have a do-over. I wish I could go back to that moment and do it different because, Jesus, you know that I really do love you. And Jesus says, I know. And what I want you to know is because I'm the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, and really, I'm, I'm the God of as many chances as it takes. Jesus says, get up, jump back in, and join me in my mission. Because what I want you to know is that your past failure has not changed one part of my plan for your future. As we close this morning, I don't know, maybe there's somebody here who's watching online. And the entire reason that God brought you to this place, the entire reason that you tuned in today is because if the truth were to be known, you're on the verge of giving up. And what God wants you to know this morning is that even though you may not have recognized him yet, he's on the shore of your life. <laughs> and, and he's whispering into your heart, I see the disappointment. I, I, I see the failure. I even know the ways that you're disappointed with me. But what I want you to understand is that I still have something for you. My plans have not changed. So don't quit. Don't stop. Don't go backwards. You weren't built for that. And I believe with all my heart what he's asking this morning is the same question that he asked Peter. Which, by the way, is the only question that really matters. Do you love me? Do you love me? And what I want you to know this morning that if, like Peter, all you can say is simply, yes, Lord, I love you. I know I've blown it, but I love you. I know I've fallen into this space where I've just kind of forgotten about how much you love me. And I, this morning, I love you. 
And I believe that Jesus is saying to you, that's enough. That's enough. Get up. You don't have to beat yourself up. Dust yourself off and jump back into my mission. Father, this morning, as we wrap up our time together, I want to thank you for the reminder that you're a God of second chances. That that you have this unfathomable love for your children that You desire to totally transform our lives. You desire to take us and set us on a new trajectory in life. And you understand that in this world we live in, there are so many bends and turns and hiccups and bumps. And sometimes we get bruised. And sometimes when life happens, we don't always understand what you're doing. And there can be a temptation in us that when what we thought was going to happen didn't happen. When we thought we were stronger than we really were and we try to do life on our own, we wind up failing. There's always the temptation to go back. This morning, I believe that you're reminding us that you're a God who is always calling us forward. I thank you that you're a God who you didn't wait for Peter and James and John to come to you. You met them where they were. You went to that place of failure, a place of disappointment. And you revealed yourself to them in a fresh new way. And I believe that that's what you're doing this morning. And this morning... If you find yourself in that place, the Holy Spirit's been tugging on your heart. I just encourage you to say yes to him today. (laughs) Yes, Jesus. Yes, I love you. You know, I'm sorry. And I want to follow you. This morning, for the rest of us, I... I pray that we'll go back to that place when we first answered that question. When we first encountered Jesus in such a powerful way that we were willing to leave everything in order to follow him. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And this morning, maybe the best thing you could do during this Advent season as we're celebrating the God of second chances is just reaffirm that commitment. God, I'm so thankful that you pulled me out. I'm so thankful that I made the decision that I made 20-some years ago to leave everything and follow you. It hadn't always been easy, but you've always been good. And I praise you for that this morning. I love you, and I worship you. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you for being the God of second chances. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.